I'm John, and this is D-O-L-W-2, episode 39, The Right of Sodomy, and I'll be reading from The Right of Sodomy, Homosexuality in the Roman Catholic Church, by Randy Engel, volume 1, pages 12 to 17. I'm joined today by Teresa and Mike, and so we get started here. I'll start reading. Hello? Do I start reading or what? Yes. Okay. Go right ahead. It is highly unlikely that educated pederasty, so-called whatever the rationale put forth to justify its practice, ever functioned effectively as a legitimate intellectual or philosophical training exercise. Rather, the system provided for a convenient, transient, and socially regulated sexual encounter that served certain needs of a designated population. Of course, like all sentimental ideals, the ideal pederastic relationship was pure in theory, but a good deal less so in practice. Can I stop you right here for a real quick second? Sure. Okay, let me... I just want to say that we're we're in volume one and we're reading um, uh, the historical perspectives from antiquity to the Cambridge spies, and this is by Randy Ingle. Um, so we're going to go more in depth into um, how this all got ingrained into the church. How many years of her life did she do put into this? How many years of her life did Teresa? Seventeen years of her life. What seven? Seventeen years of her life went into this effort for the uh, the book on the right of sodomy, and I wonder she. Why we never hear about it? I wonder too, Mike. Why don't we hear about it? Why is this on the shelves? We give enough money. Is it that expensive? We give enough money for the bishop to buy it for each parish. I wonder if, uh, you know, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. Is it an economic problem, Bishop? I, and I think we need to know. I think a lot of people. People don't know that this is going on, and that is why we're sharing this on the podcast, because um, we're like a bunch of buried heads. We need to know. We need to see what is going on. Does uh, this Miss Engel, is uh, Randy Engel, does she talk about maybe there's a lobby out there? I've heard there's communist clergy in the lobby, and, and you think there's another type of lobby besides the commie clergy? Yes, I do. I think there is a lobby, and I think it's the right in the priesthood. <laughs> Wow. What do you think, John? I agree wholeheartedly. What kind of lobby, John? Whatever kind of lobby can get through to these guys and has the most money to pay them. Okay. Uh, I may say so, actually. All right. Go ahead. <laughs> okay, John. You remember yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Sometimes the pure Eromanus turned out to be a mercenary <coughs> male... Lolita, who left his parents' house to live with his older lover and was considered lost. Sometimes the noble Orastes turned out to be just the proverbial dirty old man. Of this type of sexual predator, the Greek biographer Plutarch, 46 to 120 A.D., speaks when he says that in the beginning the pederast came slinking into our gymnasia to view the naked boys. Quite quietly, at first, he started touching and embracing the boys. Then he became more and then became more bold, and there was no holding him. Nowadays, he regularly insults conjugal love and drags it through the mud, comments Plutarch. Although Athenian law was not aimed primarily at punishing immoral behavior as such, it did seek to punish immoral behavior that either harmed those unable to protect themselves or directly transgressed against the clearly demarcated public sphere. 
Athenian society did take certain precautions to protect against the corruption of the morals of preborn minors. Children's schools were shut up after hours until daybreak and entrance into the palestra wrestling school and the gymnasia or sports arena were strictly regulated. Solon, the great Athenian statesman, enacted legislation that would impose the death sentence for men who illegally sneaked into the gymnasia and boys' schools in the imperial city, which indicates that illicit sexual seduction of male minors must have been a problem in classical Athens. Again, while custom dictated that the pederastic relationship was to end when the Eromonus grew into manhood and assumed the role of an Erastes, and his older lover married, there were incidents when it did not end. Sometimes the pair remained lovers even while both were married. Sometimes an Eromanos, especially if he were repeatedly sodomized, became habituated to the practice and carried it with him into adulthood as an adult passive homosexual. As to be expected, the great philosophers of the classical period, who represented a small but influential minority of Athenian citizens, had distinct opinions on the subject. For, unfortunately for us, Socrates, 469 to 399 BC, despite his foundational place in the history of ideas, actually wrote nothing. What knowledge we have of him is filtered through the lens and works of his famous pupil Plato, Aristoc Aristocles. 427 to 347 B.C., who after Socrates' death, later founded his own great school. From Plato's academy came yet another famous pupil and the tutor of Alexander the Great, Aristotle, 384 to 322 B.C. In Plato's symposium, we recognize a number of homosexual types at the drinking party in the characters of Agathon, a good-looking, effeminate poet with a woman's voice to whom we have already been introduced. Agathon thus carried his homosexual relationship well into adult life with his lover Pausanias. Then there is the young and vain Alcibiades who attempts to seduce Socrates unsuccessfully according to Plato. He is rejected by the master who questions the young man's true motives and suggests that Alcibiades' sexual desires will not produce virtue in him. In any case, whatever his earlier views on the superiority of homosexual relations over normal male-female congress, in his laws, Plato would outlaw homosexual behavior, including pederasty, in his aristocratic utopian society on the basis that such acts were contrary to nature. When male and female come together to share in procreation, the pleasure they experience seems to have been granted according to nature, but homosexual intercourse between males or females seems to be as unnatural seems to be an unnatural crime of the first rank. One point six three six three C three dash six. As for Aristotle, who frequently clashed with his teacher Plato, he was more interested in agape, that is, genuine friendship and brotherly love, than in eros, that is, love attached to sexual desire. Overall, Aristotle, who was married as was Socrates, and from all reports a devoted husband, placed a great value in, on the harmony of conjugal relations and family life. This was in contrast to Plato, the inveterate bachelor, 
who was willing to sacrifice the interests of both to the overriding interests of the state. The views of the common man on the subject of pederastic and adult homosexuality can be found in the Athenian theater, a state-supported form of public edification in which men and women of all classes served out the religious as well as civic duties. In the Greek tradition, the theater manifested a thoroughly heterosexual genre. The idea that two adult men would enter into a homosexual relationship was thought ridiculous. In his satirical comedies, Aristophanes, 448-380 B.C., the Athenian dramatist was a harsh mocker of homosexuality in all its forms. His language was crude, its meaning openly and consistently derogatory and scornful, as exemplified by his reference to homosexuals as Europractos, wide-arsed. Not only did he attack overt, pederast, effeminates, and secret homosexuals, but he also took a shot at the philosophers and orators for their alleged affinity for sexually deviant behavior. The foolish, often delirious antics of an adult male continuing to seek homosexual favors from a former lover now grown into full manhood, the modern equivalent of a homosexual relationship, was a popular theme in Greek comedies. In all probability, outside certain pederastic circles, found among the upper and literary classes, adult homosexuals, married or unmarried, who sought out other men with similar sexual desires, did so in a furtive manner with a sense of shame and ongoing fear of public disclosure and ridicule. In his landmark study, Greek Homosexuality, which explored homosexual behavior in Greek art and literature, between the 8th and 2nd centuries B.C., Kenneth J. Doba noted, Greek culture differed from ours in its readiness to recognize the altern- alternation of homosexual and heterosexual preferences in the same individual. Its implicit denial that such alternation or coexistence created peculiar problems for the individual or for society is sympathetic response to the open expression of homosexual desire in words and behavior, and its taste for the uninhibited treatment of homosexual subjects in literature and the visual arts. I do not believe, however, that the historical evidence of the Athenian classical period supports the main premise of Dober's assertion. In fact, the historical evidence, some of which is provided by Dober himself, proves just the opposite, that the ancient Greeks were less than sympathetic in their per- response to certain homosexual behaviors is certainly acknowledged by Dover in his 1994 memoir, Marginal Comment, in which, he, in which the noted Greek scholar recalled, if an Athenian adult male fell in love with a handsome boy or still beardless youth, no inhibition restrained him from saying so, but the quarry was expected to rebuff the pursuer, a boy who actually sought to arouse older males was condemned, and so were homosexual relationships between two bearded males. A more realistic assessment of the role of pederasty in classical Athens is provided by another Greek scholar, Robert Flossilier, who, according, according to Flossilier, inversion homosexuality was never very prevalent except in one class of Greek society and over a limited period. Further, he stated, there is no evidence that homosexuality met with any general social approval. 
The Greeks never canonized the physical act of sodomy. They merely kept up the fiction of educational pederasty. Okay, more similarities than differences. In researching Greek pederastic practices, I was struck by the number of similarities that existed between the homosexual mores of ancient Athens and those of today's gay subculture. Certainly, in the adolescent seduction and courting pattern of the Erastices and his Eromenos in the high premium put on youth and beauty of the young male partner in the giving of elaborate gifts by suitors in the petty jealousies, brawls, and rivalries that arose between competing suitors, tox, and genitals of the beloved and in the masturbatory actions of the senior partner, we catch a glimmer of the Peter Pan complex that drives much of the, do- the erotic behavior of the contemporary male homosexual. The unmanly, effeminate, pederast, and overt homosexual of ancient Athens, much like our own stereotyped gay figure, was typically satirized as an androgynous figure with a high voice and mincing gait. He was the object of public and private ridicule. Whatever his class or occupation, and though it may well be that, as Dover claims, the Greeks were not into genetic determination or orientation, they apparently had little difficulty in recognizing abnormal behavior when they saw it. Just want to digress here for a minute. Hey, if I say one of these names wrong, please please correct me, okay? okay if you yeah. if you if you see that I'm doing that wrong, yeah, okay. so people get the get the yeah. right okay yeah. meaning. The Greek experiment with pederasty tends to support Austrian psychiatrist Alfred Adler's early theory that sexual perversions, including homosexuality, are an artificial construct produced by emotional and social conditioning and training rather than a matter of constitutional error or genetics. That all was not sweet and light with the homosexual milieu of ancient Greece is revealed although not intentionally so, in Dover's extensive coverage of the prosecution of Timarchus? Timarchus. Timarchus, an Athenian prosecutor and public figure, was charged and later found guilty of having prostituted his body to another man in violation of the law. In an aside reference to the crime of homosexual assault on a full-grown Athenian youth, Dover noted that unwilling homosexual submission was held to be the product of dishonest enticement, threats, blackmail, the collaboration of accomplices, or some other means which indicated premeditation. Add the the not-unknown suicide, murder, and assassination of Athenian boy lovers or their query and one and one comes close to the nature of many modern day violent many modern day violent homosexual intrigues Dover related one such story from Plutarch's dialogue on love about per, Periandos of Embracia thank you John who was slain by his erroneous Eromanos. Eromanos, yes. All right, Eromanos, when the tyrant indelicately, thank you, indelicately asked his young lover if he was pregnant yet. 
suggesting that his partner had taken on the role of a female. I was also struck by the actions of the literary and dramatist homosexual revisionists of the day like the... Okay, John. Esquilos. 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 Aeschylus, who managed to turn traditional Greek myths into affirmations of homosexual relations. He paired off Achilles and Patroclus Patroclus. as homosexual lovers with the reverse erroneous Eromenus Erastes relationship, and the beautiful Ganymede became the Eromenus of Zeus. The idea that men or a god and a youth could develop strong, non-erotic, lifelong friendships seem as foreign to the mind of the Greek homosexual apologist as it is for those of our own day who insist on filtering all male relationships through their own homoerotic lens. Homoerotic lens. Wow. Not surprisingly, shades of eromonas... Aristides' yearnings can be found in contemporary gay life. For example, in Gay and Gray, the older homosexual man avowed homosexual Raymond Berger discussed his decision to become a John. A John, he explained, is a patron to a younger person who offers his time, attention, affection, and sex. The John offers money in return. This arrangement... Berger concluded enables him to have sexual relations with persons who are young and attractive and very alluring simply by freeing myself of a few of these dollars. On the other hand, we have the Marxist pederast journalist Daniel Zhang who was rejected who has rejected the Greek romanticized, idealized, and often sexist and ageist relationship between a male adult mentor and his young male student. Gay-identified lovers of youth and men have come out, rejecting the archaic ideal of Greek love, which has as its goal a man guiding a young boy on his road to marriage, nuclear family, good citizenship, and other aspects of straightdom. Zhang stated, boy lovers should embrace a positive gay identity and not pretend to cultivate a straight identity in either themselves or their sexual partners, he said. Male Homosexuality in Sparta Historically speaking, the homosexual ethos does not always play itself out in an identical way, even in the same nation during a similar time frame. This becomes quite evident when he when we examine the development of adult male homosexual practices in Sparta. While the Greeks looked to cosmopolitan Athens for culture in times of war, they turned to Sparta for military leadership. Geographically landlocked and isolated between two mountain ranges on the Pelop. Peloponnesian Peninsula of the Laconian city-state of Sparta was, for all the practical purposes, a military dictatorship ruled over by a dual monarchy, oligarchy of native nobility and military elite. A three-tiered class system 
from Sparta, Spartan society with the ruling class and soldier citizen forming a small minority of the population at the upper tier in a very large and politically unstable and potentially rebellious agrarian, a, agrarian slave population called Helots, the entire conquered populace of Messenia at the base. Between the two was lodged the foreign commercial middle class, the Piriosi, that acted as a buffer population between rulers and slaves or serfs. Although it had a similar population to imperial Athens at the peak of its power, about 400,000, the numbers of Spartates, Spartates, who possessed full legal and political rights was considerably less, about 30,000. The core of Spartan life from birth to death centered upon the absolute power of and allegiance to the militaristic state. The courage of of its military down to the common foot soldier and the ferociousness of the Spartan war machine was legendary throughout the Greek world and beyond, striking fear and terror into the hearts of its enemies wherever it went. For Greeks, especially Spartans, to sack a city was to render it utterly desolate. The training of a Spartan soldier citizen was harsh and continuous. For much of his life, he lived in the military barracks, not in his home with his wife and children. Military training began early at the age of seven, when every male Spartan youth entered the public school system and began training that would render him both physically fit and psychologically disciplined. Cowardice in any form was severely punished. Although students who taught were taught to read and write, these were secondary to his education as a warrior soldier. Between the ages of 18 and 20, the Spartan cadet was tested for physical strength and military and leadership skills. If he passed, he became a full-time soldier of the state militia, lived on post, even if married, and gradually moved up the military ranks. If he failed to qualify, he entered the ranks of the middle class, where he could own property and establish a business, but he lost his right of citizenship. At age 30, as in Athens, the Spartiate completed his military training and attained full citizenship and political rights. He was allowed to live in his own house with his own family, although he continued to serve in the military until the retirement at the age of 60. Spartan virtue was measured solely in manly terms, loyalty, loyalty to the state, and the Spartan brotherhood self-sacrifice, courage, sobriety, and physical strength, and these were ingrained by training and reinforced by custom. All sense of effeminacy, luxury, egotism, and self-aggrandizement were eschewed. If today we find some gay groups idealizing and praising Sparta for its alleged openness to adult homosexuality and other practices, it is probably because, as historian Will Durant has suggested, they did not have to live there. Every aspect of the Spartan life included, including entertainment, sports, religious and civic festivals were seen primarily within a militarized context. 
Eventually, even the arts were suppressed with the exception of choral dance and music that could be turned to militaristic ends. Like their male counterparts, young girls in Sparta went to school, beginning at the age of six or seven, and received a slimmed-down version of the male military education with emphasis on marital skills of self-defense and physical strength needed to produce strong offspring. She married at the age 18 in a wedding ceremony that, like the Spartan life, was direct, simple, and promptly consummated, after which the groom returned to his barracks and military duties. Real sex, that is reproductive sex, was always a major consideration for the Spartiates, especially since their ranks were so vigorously called at birth by a rigidly enforced state program of eugenic infanticide of weak or disfigured infants. Interestingly, sex, sexual abstinence, abstinence, abstinence between the married couple was seen as a method of sustaining sexual attraction and ensuring fertility that otherwise might be squandered on sexual dissipation. In Sparta, a man's social status was reflected in his male progeny. To be a bachelor was a disgrace, and the state attached certain restrictions to men who did not marry or married but did not produce a son. Celibacy in Sparta was a crime, commented Durant. Okay, that's where we end here today. All right, uh, did you want some commentary, or did you want me to read, or what was that when you said that's where we end today? Well, um, and what page, page, page 17, we ended at page 17, yes, we got we 25 minutes. Yes. Did you want time off for a sponsor, or did you want commentary or an analysis? Do what you first? Really want to say some comments, or your sponsor? Well, you I think overarching everything she's talking about, well, let me go over the title of that book. It says, The Right of Sodomy, Homosexuality, and the Roman Catholic Church, Volume 1. Historical Perspectives from Antiquity to the Cambridge Spies. Uh, I think that uh, she, she has a, a, what I would say, a compelling argument that there is a homosexual clergy lobby active. Yes, and, I agree. And from what we've come across in our own diocese here is we've had, uh, John, you've shared with me, and I think Teresa too, the, the commentary and the voice tape of our bishop saying he did not want to offend the aging homosexuals in the diocese. Is that yeah. right? Yes. Uh, that, you, any details you remember about that? Just that he was concerned about them. and uh, Who's them? I don't want to oh, hear them. Um, the aging homosexual priests, you know, which indicates to me that he, you know, he has soft-hearted for them, that he knows they're homosexuals, he knows they're in the church, and he wants to protect them in their ripe old age. Sounds like they're organized. Sounds like they're organized. They're known about. Yes. And they have some influence, whatever level that is, to turn the head of the bishop. Yes. And, you know, I and I can't help, and this is, I guess, the mother in me, but I cannot help but think that the victims, do they get the same protection by the by the priest and well instead of using victim let's say heather did heather get the same concern and, and from the bishop that the homosexual lobby does no did heather get the same does heather have the same influence over the bishop that the homosexual lobby has no absolutely and, not and, and does heather get instead something negative cold shoulder yes she gets cold shouldered and um uh... You know, I mean, she can't even so much as get prayer in her church. You mean the bishop won't say a mass for her? No. The bishop will not encourage or force the 
homosexual lobby to say a mass for. No. Or the parish priest to say a mass for. No. In fact, uh, I heard the word in your reading and John's reading about infanticide. What What is infanticide in your mind? In my mind, it's the killing of babies in the womb or just after. And uh, it was condemned in the old world, sparred in Rome? Yes. What do you say when the church takes a soul and just puts it out uh, out of the parish? Inf- I would say it's... Spiritual infanticide? Yes. Yes, I would. I like that word. Yes, right. that's exactly what it is. I couldn't hear and, you. And it, that's exactly what it is. And then, okay, when, when we're talking about human dignity. Is that going back in time? Is that going back? Or are we making progress towards God? Not everyone is. In that concept of accepting infanticide, is the acceptance of infanticide a move away from God or towards God? Away from God. There you go. Thank you. You got the right answer I, there. I had to pull it out like a dentist, but I did it. You have to say it so what she can co- understand it. <laughs> what know? color is the blue bag? Uh, I don't know, but I'm from Appalachia. <laughs> you, you, you've been declared to have only a half a brain, right? I only have a half a brain. And the clergy yes. wouldn't lie. No, no, they wouldn't we, lie. We would rather no. believe, yeah. Yeah. There's a story about... I wonder if they protect people with, with small brains. <laughs> well, I don't know. Let's find out if they have a soft heart for that. Yeah. So, uh, so what we're... Me? Yeah. Can we lobby? Can we lobby for John, could we form a lobby? Yeah, we can lobby for that too. Is think, that okay? Do you, do you think they'll they'll uh, uh, vote in our favor? I didn't say anything about voting in your favor. I just said we could lobby for it. You know? All, right. All we want, right? Yeah. Now, there's a thing about a story about to we'll talk about this. We'll round this out, and then I'll go into some of the readings here that we have the educational analysis and what we have a story about a Dominican. His name is Thomas. He's known as the angelic doctor, and uh, he was a, a rather uh, large man, and he was a quiet. They called him the ox, and he did a lot of work, studied, and in the scriptorium, you know what scriptorium is? That's where they're, what's the scriptorium in your, okay, that's a scriptorium. That I heard you, I thought you were saying yes with the <laughs> nodding of your head. So the scriptorium is where you are taking th- things, at, you're taking scriptures, and monks are writing down, and it's their they're like copying them, okay? That's why they call it scriptorium. I definitely didn't know what that was. So they had a lot of people doing that at one time, and that's how they saved the scriptures during the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages, when maybe libraries were burned or people couldn't read and write, so they saved the literature. So it, Thomas Aquinas would have six of these monks, it would say, at one time, and he would dictate out. That's how we got his works, because he's dictating. Uh, John would have chapter one, you'd have chapter two, three, and he's going from each person. So he was called the dumb ox because he didn't say anything in his in his learning years, but he, he was rather eloquent, but nobody asked him any questions. So one day the friars were making fun of him. And uh, he's a young man. He's considered the dumb ox because in his humility, he would never have, he never would expose, uh, uh, he didn't talk about things. So they, they were looking out the window and they said to Thomas Aquinas, they said, oh, look, brother Thomas, cows are flying. And so Thomas Aquinas ran to the window and looked up and looked out and they all laughed at him. And they said to him, they said, Thomas Aquinas, how dumb are you? Cows can't fly. Thomas Aquinas responded, my dear brothers, I would rather believe cows can fly than my brothers would lie. What a power, wow. 
Powerful retort. Very powerful retort, and, yes. And his humility, we get back to the little flower, how she wouldn't answer. She would be humble in many ways, even though she wanted to say something. So in this in this Thomas Aquinas deal, one time during the training, the professor teaching the class had a problem. He was he was struggling with articulating some like you were doing some of the words. Mm-hmm. So finally, you called on the students, and they come across to Thomas. It was his turn, and Thomas did a an elocution. He he did a talk on the concept that the professor was having a hard time on, and he did it better than the professor, and they were just stunned. The whole class was stunned. That's the story of his beginning to realize he's not the dumb ox that people think. Now, how I got onto that, I'd rather believe cows can fly than my brothers would lie, is that we get back to masses for Heather, and uh, I'd rather believe that uh, the bishop would have masses for Heather than that the homosexual lobby's that strong and would prevent it. They probably don't know. Maybe it's the parish priest that hasn't been asked by the homosexual lobby or by the bishop, but we could lobby them. We could maybe, you know, with lobbies, you can purchase interest. I mean, I'm involved in groups that we, we hire lobbyists. And I've, I've, talked to, uh, I've talked to some of the homeless there, and they've got a bag or two. I talked to our buddy that uh, you're trying to help out who got hit by the car. He'll, he'll donate $7.77 worth of bottles and returnables. I think it's about two black bags to the homosexual lobby if they can influence the bishop to talk to our parish priest to get a mass for Heather. Wouldn't that be awesome? That would be awesome. You know? Yes. And so, uh, you can't beat them, join them. That's right. Just hire, we want to know if we can get fractional lobbying, is I guess what it is. We just want $7.77 worth. That sounds fair. That sounds very fair. In, in the economy of salvation, you know, the economy that we have here in, in Flint, Michigan, we go and buy a truck, there's a price to it. In the economy of salvation, if we need some prayers and masses, uh, what's the price, guys? Yeah. Well, you know, yeah, all I can say is maybe I need a miter hat. Yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> that, yeah. Will that make me important? And, and I'll, a prominent not. Catholic. I'll yeah. tell you, a T-shirt that says "Bishop, I'm a prominent Catholic." I pay your salary. There you go. There I you donated go. to the DSA. <laughs> yeah. All right, boy, we got a little bit of an edge on ourselves today. Huh, oh, yeah, that's right. What'd you put in the coffee, yeah. John? Yeah, some extra vodka I put in my coffee. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you teetotaler. Well, let's get over here to the man himself. We got Mr. Thomas Aquinas with us, and everybody thinks he's a Dominican. We've Carmelite him. We write for the Carmel brand. Can, can we dig him up and turn him into a Carmelite? Absolutely. Why not? If they can, if cows can fly, why not? That's right. <laughs> yeah, no. So uh, here we go. Big picture for today. Uh, keep in mind, and this is according to the mind of Thomas Aquinas, and uh, it's, it's part of his, uh, I call it allocute, his teachings. I can't say they're defeat, defeating, that you have to believe this, but it is a roadmap of knowledge that in angelic doctor that has often been not discussed. What is the role of your diocesan clergy personified in the bishop? Versus the role of religious orders. And I just share with you this. This is something I shared with Teresa earlier. She thought it was pretty good. The diocesan clergy, the bishop is known for his capacity, chief among the acts of, uh, 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 like I said, the, the, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. the priest, the bishop, is to fulfill the role of cure of souls, curing souls. Curing souls. And we think of the cure of the Rs, you know, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, just awesome. The cure of souls. Now, that's a division of labor. You work for General Motors. They had a division of labor. Yes. Folks in the front office, folks on the line. So the cure of souls is what we want to think of of our parish priest. This comes round robin when you understand uh, some of the ways we in our tribe, we live in, we're exiled here, guys. Whoever's listening to this tape, we are in, we are like in France when it was invaded by the Nazis. There was an exile group that lived outside the country that were not dominated, but they were left fear. They had to leave. We were in leaving and kicked out and whatever. We're in exile. We're still members of the parish at HolyRedeemerBurton.org, but we're in exile. Yes. We were invited to leave. Yes, we were. Or you're going to be criminal trespass. Yes. <laughs> All right. Isn't that a sweet way? That's just such a sweet a Bishop, way. I'd rather believe cows can fly than my mm-hmm. clergy would lie. Mm-hmm. But uh, so... Cure of souls. Guess what? The other division of the of the labor in terms of clergy, who are uh, the ordained clergy, is nutrition. The, they share the fruits of contemplation. So you have the cure that the parish clergy apply to the soul, curing souls. Once they're cured, it's like a physician. You got to eat. You got to be fed. The fruit of contemplation, which uh, comes from our religious so when you see those folks who are monks or friars living in the monastery, the nuns, they are contemplating the things of God, his goodness, his truths, and they share with us. They share with us. When has anybody shared with you that it was wrong what the parish priest did with Heather to put her out like garbage on the street? No one. I, I couldn't hear that again? No one has in the church, no. What color's the blue bag? Again, who told, nobody stepped <laughs> up. Nobody stepped up and said to you, that's wrong, oh, we shouldn't yeah, treat. Oh, there were people that stepped up. Which is, what's the name of the clergy? Oh, it's not a clergy, That's though. what I ask you. Okay. What part of the clergy that we pay? No clergy has. Good. When did the bishop tell you that? He never did. That's right. What color's the blue bag? You got that? I got it. Now you're running? Yeah. All right. The people listening to this tape in Porta Vallarta may not know what we're talking about. That's why I'm underlining a couple different ways. Okay. So we are doing infanticide and nobody come up and said, you know, we got to cure her. We don't throw her out like that. Right. Nobody Nobody did. said, hey, after you cured her, we got to nu- give her nutrition. We got to bring her up in the ways of the Lord. Nobody did that. Nobody did that. And I'd like to say, too, that there's no talk about contemplation at the, at the uh, AMBO. No one talks about that. At least not the churches I've been to. Talk and tell us a little bit about that. Um, and you're doing this with half a brain because they implied that you're kind of stupid, right? Yes, they tell have. Tell us what that half a brain is going to tell us. <laughs> you can produce with a half a brain what they haven't been able to produce with a whole produce with a whole brain. What does that tell you about who they're listening to? Well, you know the whole the, the good half. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. The whole the whole thing is is in contemplation is that you know we are here to become more holy. And, and to help those souls around us do the same. And we don't hear about it. We don't hear about teachings of the saints um, and, and um, the curing of souls. I don't, I never got talked to by my priest. The blue bag. What did you say? The blue bag? You never got talked to by your priest about that? No. That division of labor? Oh, not at all. No. And um, in fact, I was just told that, you know, hey, people just, most people just leave. Your priest told you that. Yes. Said, in fact, it's a little bit. He more even robust. wrote it down. He even wrote it down in a letter. In English. In English. It was a little more robust than that. I remember because I got a full brain. He said, "Why?" He said, "I think to <laughs> you, why don't you leave 
what most people do. Most people do. It wasn't yes. just most people do. Why don't you? Yes. And mm. so, and hey. also then I think to myself and, um, okay, if most people leave, how many have left? Time out for a sponsor. We have a new sponsor. Now, BigBig.com is one of the most favorite sponsors of, of John, so we'll let them come in. But stay tuned for our second sponsor that's going to come up. BigBig.com, Bishop, for all your financial needs. Get a professional. When we need to be protected, we go to. We are told by our bishop to go call 911. They are the professionals. They'll protect you yeah. with the protection that I that can't provide. Bishop. We want you to see BigBig.com for your financial protection. Is that right, John? That's right. They're, they're, they, are, they are available for you, what, Monday through Thursday, yes. professionally 10 to 4. They love you that much. Yeah. All right, and we got a second sponsor. They come to you today, and I'm going to tell you, we're going to, I think Teresa's eaten here very many, a few times here, and probably Heather. Catholic Clergy, Catholic Clergy's Cold Shoulder Cafe, here in the Diocese of Lansing, Bishop Approved, open daily, for home cooking, clergy style. Oh, <laughs> yummy. Teresa, have you eaten there at the Cold Shoulder Cafe? Oh, yeah, I've eaten at the Cold Shoulder Cafe. Oh, I bet you have yeah, several times. You go away hungry. <laughs> they, they, in fact, they served you through the buffet, right? Yes, a they revolving did. Revolving door? Yes. Cold Shoulder Cafe, all for all your hungry needs. Bishop, are you hearing this? You think he's hearing this? I sure hope he's hearing this. Yeah. yeah. Is your, anybody out there, this is standard treatment that they know about in the uh, – in the world. Uh, and just to digress on the mass and the love of God, if you're falling in love with God and you see the beauty of the mass, think of the mass, the action that there's more action going on that you don't see than what you see. There's more power. And I, the message to the clergy and the bishops and you who are in your lobbies, the commie clergy lobby, the homosexual lobby, you remain silent and you hear our little feeble voices and you're silent when innocents like Heather or innocents like Bill uh, is put out, infanticide, spiritual infanticide. There's a lot of power going on that you don't see that you'll have a day of reckoning. We just want to be there at your judgment day. We're going to, can we, you think they'd give us a ticket? That's all. I sure hope so. I hope they are yeah. very fervent in what they believe in, but you, we just want to be there. So remember, Catholic clergy's cold shoulder cafe, bishop approved, open daily for home cooking clergy style. So if you're getting cold shouldered, that's normative in the North American uh, church. I don't know about Canada, but we sure get it here. You don't follow their political. This is about governance. It has nothing to do with what to believe or the moral life. You don't follow their political agenda. You don't do what's right for the parish and their belief. You're a history. All right, so let's go. Uh, uh, we got Cold Shoulder Cafe. We got uh, some other people we want to talk. We want to leave anybody without a voice. That's right. Oh, yeah. And the yummies, oh, I got here a little ad on the cold. The most recent addition to the... Uh, to the menu is, I said, you got a note here. Come on down and feast on yummies. Ecclesial corruption has never tasted so good. <laughs> <laughs> Have you tasted that ecclesial corruption? Huh? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, yep. And then uh, I'm, I'm, I can't count. Oh, we have something for Bishop Barron. Bishop Barron's the one who, and on, always has his polls. 
The polls say, Bishop Barron will tell you, the polls say, hey, the Catholic youth, they're not leaving the church because of corruption and scandals. That, that's Bishop Polls. That's what they say. Well, guess what, Bishop? We got a poll for you, too. Could you interpret this for us, Bishop? The polls say, give us Barabbas. You remember that? <laughs> yes, yes. You have two choices. So uh, polls may be your teacher, but they ain't ours. Explain that to us. Could you guys, uh, in our, our parish, our uh, our church. How do we deal with that? How do we reconcile Bishop Barron having his polls and the Holy Spirit giving us a poll where the people, the polls had a choice between Barabbas and Christ. Who did they choose? What did the polls take? They took Barabbas. And what did they, what did they then say? What I think it was, was it Pontius Pilate, John? Yes. Pontius. Am I saying his, his name right? Yeah, as well as you can, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> with my microphone, yeah. Pontius Pilate, and he, Pontius says, well, what do I do with the Christ? He asked the Poles, what do I do with Christ? What'd they say? Crucify him. I couldn't hear, John. Uh, crucify him. You hear that, Baron? Is that your teacher, the Poles? Well, I'll tell you right now, folks, be careful how you're led. Remember, if cows can fly, would they lie? <laughs> All right, now we got to get over to some serious stuff because we need it. We got another guest. <laughs> we can't make any money if we don't have these high-hitting guests here. And right out from Spain, we have a friend. Uh, uh, we was going to call him Franciscan. Franciscan got fired. You can't touch this. This is John of the Cross, the Carmelite guy. And he's going to talk about a little bit about how you want to test things. He is a doctor of, of, of love. This is John of the Cross, mystical love. Uh, mm -hmm. He was the... Uh, the object of jo the, the great St. John Paul II's doctoral dissertation, Faith in the Works of John of the Cross. And hear what he says about the biblical, the, uh, the biblical teaching about testing the spirit. So here he is. We have a censure and opinion of the spirit and the attitude and prayer of a discalced Carmelite nun, probably written in Sejovia between 1588 and 89. And, I, and this is part of the... Uh, uh, letters, which is part of the 1979 Collected Works of John of the Cross from ICS Publications. I, I just have a short one page and a paragraph to read to you. In the effective, these are the words of John of the Cross. In the effective attitude, this religious bears there appear to be five defects which reveal that hers is not a good spirit. <clears throat> First, it seems she has within her spirit a great attachment to possessing things, whereas the good spirit is always very detached in its appetites. Now, remember, I want you to think about your clergy. Think about Bishop Bling. Think about these are the clergy that say you can't you can't do any good or say any truth unless you have my permission, Teresa. Right. Yes. Yeah. I've been said. Yeah. yeah. Yes. What color is the blue bag? Yes, <laughs> yes. that's right. Yes. And then uh, you can't do any good. Furthermore. Uh, don't judge me. I, what did they say about one person you knew that was at the parish? He was judgmental, divisive, and all kinds of things. Was he judgmental? Uh, yes. Yeah, okay. Yes, so, so we have our parish priest and the clergy saying you're judgmental. You start bringing up things about them, questioning them, you're judgmental and divisive. So they're not going to want you to test the spirit. Right. right they're not yes. going to want you to go to the woman, woman the, the window, the window, like the, the, the saintly Thomas Aquinas and see if cows are flying. Oh, no. Right. All right. So again, you want to test that spirit. So first it seems, whereas the good spirit is always very detached in its appetites, uh, uh, 
so it, it seems that she has within her a spirit of great attachment to possessing things. Our own parish priest will have later on testimony uh, from one of the witnesses about a new car. Got to have a new car. Got to have a new car. Yes. You remember that? I remember that story. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right answer. Right. Second, she is too secure in her spirit and has little fear of being inwardly mistaken. Do you think when they were putting out the trash and getting rid of people they couldn't cure at our Holy Redeemer Parish, they were inwardly insecure at all? No. No. They were confident. Here's the John of the Cross says she is too insecure, too secure in her spirit and has little fear of being inwardly mistaken. Where where this fear is absent, the spirit of God is never present to per- preserve the soul from harm, as the wise man says in Proverbs fifteen twenty seven. Have you heard these before? No. Okay. So this is a, this is the guy who is the master, uh, a saint, and not only that, he he is. He's up there. You have the three stages, the illuminative, the purgative, the, unit, the illuminative, and the unitive. He's the master of all three. Even in saints, you'll get from Garigou Lagrange and uh, Father, uh, some of the other priests. All, not all saints are masters of all three stages of the spiritual life. You know, you can be a, 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 you can be a saint and only have half a brain. Thank God. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> thank God. Yes, so, thank God. Yeah, this guy's got a full, full, <laughs> full deck here. Third, it seems she has the desire to persuade others that her experiences are good and manifold. How many times did... Our pastor go to you, Teresa, and just hammer on you that that what he's saying is right and and Mike's wrong. Uh, at least three times, uh, and but probably four. Probably more, but you can only count on your one hand. That's right? right? You're only allowed one hand. If to I count get up one. to five, I'm in trouble. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no industrial. Yeah. yeah, okay. Third, it seems she has the desire to persuade others that her experiences are good and manifold. A person with a genuine spirit does not desire to do this, but on the contrary, desires his ex- that his ex- experiences be considered of little value and despise, and this he do- and this he does himself. Fourth, and this is the main fault: the effects of humility do not appear in her attitude. When favors are genuine, as she says here that hers are, they are ordinarily never communicated to a soul without first undoing and annihilating it in the inner abasement of humility. And if these favors had produced this effect in her, she would not have failed to say something about it here, and even a great deal. For the first thing the soul esteems and is eager to speak of are the effects of humility, which certainly are so strong that they cannot be disguised. Uh, for although they may not be so noticeable in all the apprehensions of God, still these apprehensions which she here calls union are never present without them. And he goes into the Psalms, uh, uh, Proverbs eighteen twelve and Psalm 118, uh, 118.71. Now remember, humility, for those of you in the, in, with Carmel, Teresa would say humility is the acceptance of truth. Humility is defined as submission to truth. Yeah. Did you see a lot of truth reigning in our parish? Absolutely not. That's exactly the thing. And we think of humility as maybe you, in terms of obedience, you, you kneel, pay, pray, and obey. That's the humility they're asking for. Yes, that's they, what they want. Yes. The church is always... My way or the highway. My way or the highway yeah. is yes. the humility. Yeah, right. They're not talking about submission to truth, submission uh, to of your intellect, your will, and, and your memory to God, orienting to God. It's to them. We Keep that in mind. We didn't even discuss God. <clears throat> yeah. That... It, that <laughs> Well, you, that's how the... In those meetings, we did not discuss God and what God, God intended. Did you begin or end with prayer? No. Yeah. Now, fifth, not. 
May I continue? You with may. With the blue bag? All right, All right thank you. Just get over there. <coughs> Fifth, the style and language she uses doesn't seem to come from the spirit she claims. For the good spirit itself teaches a simpler style, a one without the affections or exaggeration she uses. And all this and all this about what she said to God and God said to her seems to be nonsense. You don't hear people say that nonsense that often. No. And you'll see with the people we're dealing with, they will uh, uh, break out. Uh, they got a gift of tears or, oh, you should see him pray and a lot of talking in tongues. But there's, an, you know, the exaggeration of all this. But ultimately, the, uh, uh, the taste is in the pudding. And just remember, what we say here in this entire podcast, all we're working, we submit to Mother Church for... Uh, for judgment, that doesn't mean that we're doing that to the clergy. That may, that church that may judge us will may be the church in the future. Doesn't mean to corrupt and wicked bishops. You use your common sense. Use your com- but, That's what I love the Carmel brand is because you do have a right to use your common sense, even if you're from Appalachia. And have half a brain. And have half a brain. We're joking about half a brain because <laughs> the uh, the dominion of the lie, and we are children of the kingdom of truth. The dominion of the lie. The empire of injustice will come upon you and attack you if you have whatever insecurity. They'll say you're stupid or you have, you know, implying that you don't know what you're talking about. Uh, You can't reason without them. They have to do the thinking for you. Or in my case, you're mentally ill or you got a devil in you or something to that effect. And when in reality, you're like Sherlock Holmes looking around and saying, well, you know, show me the books. And they don't want to show you the books. Where did the money go to? They don't want to talk about the money. Let me continue because we're just about out of time. Uh, he mentions nonsense. That's pretty strong word. So don't be afraid to say when you see stuff, use common sense. And if they're acting nonsensical, how nonsensical to say, I can't cure this person. We're going to put her out to the trash or go somewhere else where she can be cured. Not here, though. Uh, I would advise, and they never offer to give back the money you paid for the medicine to cure. Right. Yeah. I would advise that they should not command or allow her to write anything about this, and that her confessor should not allow, show willingness to hear of it, other than to hold it in little esteem and contradict it. These are testings. You contradict the soul, and they go bananas. You'll see self-love. Mispronounce somebody's name. And and see how they they get go wacko. A pace. Do something to contradict their time, space, and uh, place and manner of of living. And if they're full of self love, they won't like that. A Steve to a Stephen. Think about that. He talks about contradicting it. You're testing the spirit. Let them try her in the practice of sheer virtue, especially in self contempt humility and obedience and by the sound of the metal when tapped the quality of the soul caused by so many favors will show itself and the trials must be good ones for there is no devil that will not suffer something for his honor so keep in mind folks we can go on if you want to hear more about that i can extrapolate on that but the idea is you test the spirit okay and you want to have a uh, when we're talking about self-contempt, humility, and obedience, obedience is not the blind obedience they're talking about. Give me money. You know, we're talking about, this is about a, a nun that's in a Carmelite order, and she's agreed. She's contracted with the order what her obedience is, okay? And so just like if you enter the Carmelite order, uh, you agree to give up part of your will. If you're a lay person, to pray a half hour at meditate prayer, a half hour a day, morning and evening office, uh, honor Mary Daly, 
Joseph have some 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 semblance of of uh, respect for Joseph. I'm not going through it right now. I don't have it before me. But they know. But this obedience, the clergy class, it's not obedience that they tell you not to serve God. It's not obedient. That's not obedience that you're required to give. That's not intelligent. That to do something that's not intelligent or to suppress your rights. You know, not intelligent. Not inte- you do not have to fund sin. You give me money, and then they go sin. Give me money, and you see them with their pants and underwear down around their ankles. Don't be obedient to sin. In fact, hate. That's why we call in our letters to the bishop, we're the haters group. Oh, we hate darkness. We hate injustice. We hate sin. All the things that you should hate in a righteous heart. We have no problem with that. Call us haters. Call us dividers. Our Father divided light from darkness. Okay, and called the light day and the dark night. Remember that? Yes. Yeah, and I just can't Take help. I you. can't help thinking about um, the, my parish priest there, and you know, and in my conscience, um, I, you know, when you when you have something that you know completely know that it is wrong <clears throat> to do what they're asking you to do, and for them to really try to sway you to be that and to go against your conscience. Um, you have to live with that. And I couldn't, you know. You, did you want this, John? Is that why you're reaching out here for this? Did, I'm trying he's to grabbing a microphone. Trying to love you people are yanking it every which way. Yeah, oh, okay. I didn't want to lose my fingers. It coming pretty close to you. Yeah. Now, Keep in mind, you can learn a lot about common sense and governance. We're talking about church governance when we go over some of this that we're suffering through that uh, that we'll try to build on it on a common sense foundation here with uh, uh, simple, simple wrap up. Think about in your life where in the United States that if you're going to be in a nursing home or a hospital, you have certain rights, Medicaid rights. Medicare rights, and uh, right in every state, there's a contract between the federal government and the state government to m- monitor the federal funding of health care. One of them is that you set up an ombudsman program that you complain to if if you feel your rights have been violated. You can do any of the you can you can do any or all of the following: complain to the nursing home. Okay. You can file a complaint with the state and here in Michigan. You can call the Michigan Long-Term Care Ombudsman. It is against the law of the home to retaliate against you for filing a complaint. That doesn't, that's not even in the church. Isn't that no, disgusting? That's disgusting. It is disgusting. Um, you know, you don't have any of that that you can follow, and your, your rights are just... The, you know, just the, taken away. The, the, these are from the secular world. These are the, what do you call them, John? The infidels, or the three names we call them, infidels. Yeah. The, uh, you're, you're our brainiac. They're, what are you talking about? I'm talking about the infidels. Uh, when we talk about people coming, the hordes, the 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 hordes of people coming. Two minutes to go. Well, that's why I'm referring to you. These infidels, these hordes of barbarians, take care of each other better than we do through the clergy class that we yeah. have paid to cure souls. That's my point. Yes. You follow what? And so you can't they're learn from these. They're, they're not just, doing their they're job. They're not doing their job. Can we say anything? Would it be acceptable for me to say starve the DSA and get yeah. some leverage? Absolutely yeah. it would. I just said so. Okay. <laughs> All right. Here you go, buddy. All right. We wrap it up because we're almost out of time here. Excuse me. <clears throat> Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil men. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. May God bless this podcast, and may the Holy Spirit use it to touch people's hearts. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. May we get it up to Facebook, John. Yes.